Hi there, Alice Brennan here, and this is Background Briefing. In part one of our collaboration with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, Background Briefing reporters Mario Christodoulou and Alex Mann, along with a team of journalists from across the world, looked at what happens when something goes wrong with a medical device. And by medical device, we're talking pacemakers, joint implants, breast implants, and even devices like defibrillators. This global investigation into the medical devices industry involved 250 journalists across 36 countries, and already it sparked responses from governments around the world. Here in Australia, though, calls are growing for a registry to be set up for all high-risk devices, and Health Minister Greg Hunt has asked the Therapeutic Goods Administration to review whether there's a need for additional safety measures. We've recently seen a very large-scale product recall in Australia in the Takata airbags. Everybody knows what make and model motor car they have. Everybody who's been caught up with that has been contacted on numerous occasions to get that airbag replaced. If we can do it with an airbag in cars, why can't we do it with devices like pacemakers, implanted joints, things like that, that are far more directly involved in personal safety? Alex Mann has been on the story. Alex, hi. Hi. The big question here is how do medical devices get approved for use in Australia in the first place? It's actually impossible to answer that question without looking at Australia's relationship to the global system. Because here in Australia, if something's already been approved in Europe, then it's highly likely to get approved here as well. And so when we started looking at that relationship between Australia and the rest of the world, we found this interconnected global regulatory process that's actually full of holes. And there are some device manufacturers ready and willing to use them. Now, this is what surprised me. In some cases, devices have been approved with little or no clinical testing, right? Yeah. Our global investigation found some medical devices that have not been adequately tested and have ended up inside patients' bodies. Things like implants that had failed in baboons or were tested only on pigs and dead bodies. And a few years ago, one of our Dutch partners on this story managed to get a fake device fashioned out of a supermarket mandarin bag approved for use as transvaginal mesh. Well, we basically want to make an estimation how sure it is that we get the CE mark. 100% is too much. <laughs> we, we will no. agree with 99.9. And this is a conflict. Medical devices can do so much for people who need access to them urgently. So there might be a temptation to get those products onto the market as soon as possible. Exactly. Two sides to the story, as they say. But the obstacle to getting this stuff to market for the manufacturers is regulation. But it's also that regulation that's there to protect patients from harm. And if you do have a medical device that you're worried about, please make sure that you speak to your specialist. But that's not where we're starting the story this week. We're starting the story in a very unlikely location. I'm standing in the jaws of a giant smile. Each tooth is about a metre wide and the eyes are the size of small cars. This is the gateway to Sydney's iconic Lunar Park. And today, the key players in Australia's medical devices industry are meeting here. It's only early, but I've seen a few people in suits 
walking in through the gates of the amusement park and I'm going to go up and have a chat to a few of them and see if they'll speak to us. Um, do you mind if I ask you a couple of quick questions? Sure. How important is lobbying for your industry? Extremely. Our uh, managing director, as a matter of fact, is um, quite heavily involved with lobbying a lot of the healthcare technologies in Canberra um, and promoting the fact that they're available to the public. The whole health industry is in need of reform, so if we can get a bit of a voice with our politicians, that's good. Medical technology is moving so fast in terms of its innovation that we need to work together as to bringing it into market access. That's the biggest issue. What's on the agenda for today? <laughs> Politics. This conference is sponsored by the Australian Medical Devices Lobby, the MTAA. The MTAA represents international companies like Johnson & Johnson, 3M and Boston Scientific, as well as our local industry that last year was worth nearly $6.5 billion. The broader pharmaceutical health industry consistently ranks up there with the top 10 political donors in Australia. Two lobbying firms are speaking here today, as well as the Deputy Secretary of the Federal Regulator, the Therapeutic Goods Administration's John Skerritt. Two Federal MPs, Trent Zimmerman from the Liberals and Senator Murray Watt from Labor, are also speaking. And on the agenda is how the industry can get closer to government and strategically advocate for its interests. We've been waiting outside for about an hour or so now, and there are a few people in suits coming in in dribs and drabs. I'd love to go inside and actually hear what the organisers of this conference are going to be saying, but the organisers have told us that we're not allowed in today. Last year, complaints of malfunctioning devices hit a six-year high. There were nearly 3,000 formal reports of problems, 27 of which were linked to deaths. Pelvic mesh implants have been described as one of the biggest medical scandals to affect Australian women. As Desperate for relief, some have tried to have their implants removed, but it's a complex procedure. Thousands of Australian women have a contraceptive device implanted that's about to be the subject of a class action. Health advocates say more catastrophic failures of medical devices are almost guaranteed to happen again because there have been no serious reforms to the way Australia regulates implants. There are more than 57,000 medical devices available for use in Australia, and that figure is growing. More than double the number of devices were approved for use in the last five years than in the previous five, and there are countless success stories to celebrate. Miracle devices that help people to see, hear and walk where they couldn't before. But there's a tension here because while medical device technology is evolving fast and getting the latest advancements to market as soon as possible can mean better outcomes for patients, it could also mean exposing them to more risk. In our collaboration with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, we've collated global data for device approvals, recalls and hazard alerts. We've tracked dodgy devices from their first trials to their approvals, and we've spoken with the broken patients left in their wake. What we've found is a global regulatory process that's full of holes, with some device manufacturers ready and willing to use them. Sit. 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 42-year-old Wolfgang Nespoor looks unbreakable. 
He's six foot three, weighs 140 kilos, and has arms like tree trunks. Right now, he's playing with his dog. Wolfgang's life is a story filled with the activities of a man built for feats of strength. He's played rugby since he was young, served in the army for more than a decade, including a tour in East Timor, and at one stage, he even competed as a strongman. But Wolfgang's story of rugby, army and strongman sports is also filled with an alarming number of serious injuries. The most recent was the worst, and it happened playing rugby in the army. I went to tackle somebody and shoulder felt a bit warm. So I went off the field, the medic iced it and said, oh, you know, maybe you shouldn't go back on. Oh, no, I'll be all right. It was just a hard knock. Went to tackle someone again and I felt sick. So I got taken off the field. Uh, went to Darwin Hospital the next day and they put a dye injection in and the doctor said it looked like the sun. Dye came out everywhere and told me that there was absolutely no rotor cuff left. I tore the whole, sheared the whole thing clean off the joint. By this point, Wolfgang's shoulder had been through at least six operations. He'd had two on his ankle, another on his knee, and he'd grown desperate for a solution. He travelled to Brisbane to see one of the leading orthopaedic surgeons in Australia. It was November 2012. He said, oh, we got this new fantastic procedure. Um, then he showed me the implant and he said it was a carbon cup. And I was like, well, I don't know, is it carbon fibre? What, what are you guys using? The doctor recommended a partial shoulder replacement called a pyrotitan. It was a new type of implant made of this stuff called pyrolytic carbon. It's kind of like graphite, but it's manufactured and it's favoured for its smoothness. It's supposed to be better for younger patients because it lasts longer while also preserving more of the bone. The doctor told Wolfgang this was a clinical trial. He said to me that um, they needed to do 300 of these operations in people for it to be made mainstream for the rest of the public. When your shoulder's this bad, you'll take anything on, you think that it's going to work and you'll have a normal life again. What Wolfgang didn't know was that even though Pyrotitan was made in the USA, its makers didn't have approval to sell the device there. They'd got what's called an export-only licence, a type of device approval that required far less scrutiny than if it was sold domestically. One of our partners on this story, the US TV network NBC, picked this up and they let us know. Together, we discovered the company was using trials in other countries to build the clinical evidence they needed before, hopefully, getting it approved in the US. How it got into Wolfgang's shoulder is a confronting example of how some device manufacturers use the gaps in approval systems around the world to gain access to new markets, sometimes with little or no actual clinical testing. I'm going to bring back in uh, Mario here. Hey, Mario. Hey, Alex. Can you just take out your phone for a second? Get it out of the cover. Yep. Okay, have a look at the back. Yep, looking at the back now. Okay, and so you probably know what I'm telling you to look at here. What can you see there? I suspect you're pointing me to uh, the CE mark. Yeah, that's the one, the European Conformity Mark. Yeah, and, and I know a little bit about this. The CE mark, you'll find it on all sorts of things, and basically what it's saying is that this product has been certified 
in Europe. Yeah, for sale within the European market. And the thing about the CE marks and how they relate to medical devices, it's kind of like a skeleton key and it opens doors to markets all across the world, including Australia. But the European approvals process has a bit of a bad rap. As I remember it, in around 2008, European Commission officials had become aware that notified bodies were giving out these marks, the CE mark, for new high-risk implants without actually being shown any supporting evidence. Right, so that sounds weird, but I'm going to unpack that for a sec and actually track the way that device manufacturers use the EU system as a gateway, not just to other countries, but also to Australia. And so you and I, we decided to do this by tracking Wolfgang's Pyrotitan implant. And one of the first steps on Pyrotitan's journey to Australia, as well as Wolfgang's shoulder, would have been to a company like this one. For over a hundred years, we've been working with your best interests at heart. We've been working with industry, collecting best practice, helping to shape what good looks like. They're called notified bodies, and they're the ones that assess a product's compliance with European standards and give it that CE mark. In the States, it's a job performed by the government's Food and Drug Administration, and in Europe, it's the notified bodies. They're private, for-profit companies, and they assess everything from toasters and teddy bears to eyeliner and even pyrotitan for commercial access to the European market. The bodies have earned a reputation for getting some devices to market at the expense of patient safety. And it matters for us because if a device is approved by one of these notified bodies, it's almost certain to then be approved for use in Australia. Enabling customers to power ahead safely with total quality assurance solutions. One US expert described it as pick and pay. One of the stranger things about device approvals in Europe is that in some cases, you can get your device approved for use without supplying any new evidence at all. Notified bodies assess the device, and as long as it's equivalent to an existing device, then it gets the tick. And back when Pyrotitan was just hitting the shelves, equivalence was a broad term and allowed some devices onto the market that should never have been approved. Around that time, some Dutch journalists decided to test out just how easy it was to get a device onto the European market. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, nice, nice to, meet to meet you. Please take a seat. Thank you. What you can hear are people talking to representatives of a notified body about getting a device approved. Certain things we can say and certain things we can't say. But the device is not actually a device, and the people in the recording are actually journalists from the Dutch TV show Radar. We worked with these journalists as part of our global investigation. The journalists fashioned a fake transvaginal mesh implant out of a supermarket mandarin bag. They made it look like the ones already on the market, whipped up some brochures, and asked if the notified body could get it approved. Well, we basically want to make an estimation how sure it is that we get the CE mark. 100% is too much. <laughs> we, we will no. agree with 99.9. Incredibly, the one they went to said yes. There's clinical evidence. There, is, there are well-known materials. Why not? Yeah. Now, back to the Pyrotitan. In January 2010, 
two years before Wolfgang got his shoulder implant, Pyrotitan the idea became Pyrotitan the trademark. In March, it was launched to market, and by May, it was being trialled in 142 people in five countries, including Australia. But not in the US. Good afternoon, and thank everyone for their uh, accommodating our uh, voting schedules, and we apologise for any uh, inconvenience. This is a hearing on FDA medical device approval. Is there a better way? The US Food and Drug Administration is the agency charged with assessing and approving medical devices for sale on the US market. Mr. Chairman and members of the subcommittee, I'm Dr. Jeff Shuren, Director of Center for Devices and Radiological Health at the Food and Drug Administration. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. At this 2011 hearing, the US regulator was concerned about the knock-on effects of what it saw as a lax European approval system. Dr. Jeff Shuren's the one that described the EU system as pick and pay, and he singled out the notified bodies. Concerns have been raised about them. In fact, the clinical director of the UK regulatory agency said just last year, I am appalled at how many devices are brought to market with a lack of appropriate clinical data, nor are notified bodies doing enough to pick up manufacturers' shortcomings. She pointed out that many do not know how to adequately assess or challenge clinical data or tell these companies relying on equivalents that they actually need to do clinical investigations. In fact, these are commercial organizations, and I quote, many of whom are reluctant to challenge because they are fear losing their clients and for their survival. In Australia, the riskiest medical devices undergo a process called conformity assessment before being approved for use here. But we rely heavily on the European approval system for almost all the other assessments. Hello, and thanks for joining us to learn more about the medical device regulatory process in Australia. So much so that it's even a marketing point for companies that help foreign manufacturers get their devices registered in Australia. Australia also boasts a stable regulatory framework and low barriers for entry. As a matter of fact, most non-Australian companies leverage their CE marking when entering into Australia to avoid having to go through a TGA conformity assessment. 90% of devices approved for use here are assessed first in Europe. It means some problematic devices there can be approved here without any further clinical testing. Once approved by the TGA and ARTG listing is obtained, you may begin marketing your device in Australia. And that's how Pyrotitan, a US product that wasn't even approved for use in the US, went to Europe and ended up in Australia. Now, it's hard to know exactly what clinical evidence our regulators, the TGA, relied upon to say that this device was okay for use in patients like Wolfgang, apart from the CE mark. We've asked them, but they won't tell us. They say it's commercial in confidence. The only thing the makers say is, quote, prior to achieving these regulatory clearances, the device underwent extensive preclinical performance evaluation, including biomechanical strength, wear and impact testing, demonstrating its safe and effective performance. What we do know is that the carbon material had never been tested in human shoulders until the Australian clinical trial and that five months before Wolfgang got his pyrotitan implanted, the company had sent out a recall notice after a device was found to have fractured. Wolfgang says he was told about one patient whose implant had failed, but he wasn't told about the recall. He was still recovering from his operation when it became clear that his new pyrotitan shoulder wasn't working. It was about 
two months later, I was sitting in the bedroom and I went to move my arm and I could hear this loud, audible squeak. Wolfgang was confused. I thought, I don't know, something in my head and my hearing things. So I went downstairs and I asked my wife, I said, can you listen and see if my shoulder's squeak? And she had a laugh. Well, I moved my shoulder. He said, yeah, and it was loud. You could really hear it outside the body. Wolfgang went back to his treating doctor. I said, look, you know, the shoulder doesn't feel right. It's squeaking, it's locking. I can take a fair bit of pain, but that was, it was a stupid amount of pain. Eventually, Wolfgang went to a different doctor, and it took a while, but the new doctor decided to have a look inside. I sort of convinced him. I said, look, I know something's wrong with my arm. Can you please have a look at it? And that's where he said to me, all right, we'll go keyhole surgery and I'll see what I find. So as we opened the shoulder implant, you could see some black powdery stuff within the joint. The doctor Wolfgang turned to was Dr. Des Suarez. And then as we rotated the head, uh, there was a crack along the implant itself in the top surface of it, where part of it had cracked and broken. As I took that off underneath in the bone, there was black powdery fragments, which is obviously the disintegrating carbon from the pyrotitan implant. It confirmed the fact that the problem was failure of the implant, that the um, implant had cracked and failed, and that was the cause of his pain. Dr. Des Suarez is a prominent orthopaedic surgeon who sat on government private health insurance rebate committees, and he's also a part-time political advisor. After cleaning the gunk from Wolfgang's shoulder, Dr. Suarez gave him a complete shoulder replacement. Dr. Suarez says the material used in the pyrotitan implant was unlikely to work in shoulders. The forces in a shoulder joint are far greater than would be suitable for something like this. In a shoulder, uh, I think it's probably not an appropriate implant. In August 2013, less than a year after Wolfgang got the pyrotitan installed, the TGA sent out a hazard alert warning about the device's potential to break under excessive loads. Dr Suarez questions how pyrotitan got here in the first place and says Australia's system of device approvals is broken. I think the TGA needs to accept responsibility for not actually having clinical assessment as part of its criteria. The TGA basically does a paper assessment and looks at materials but does not have clinicians giving them advice and that is a big failure in our system. I just want to get to facts and figures, I want to make sure I don't mislead. Dr John Skerritt is the head of the TGA. He says the pyrotitan was initially put in the lower risk class 2 device category, and like most devices in that category, it was approved in Australia because it had a CE mark, and the fact it had no FDA approval wasn't relevant. He says Australians are not being used to test other countries' devices. I don't believe we're guinea pigs for other countries. Uh, different companies will take products to different markets. Dr Skerritt rejects Dr Suarez's statement that the TGA doesn't have clinicians giving them advice. He says now all orthopaedic implants have been given a higher risk class 3 classification and that this will result in an immediate in-house review by the TGA before approval. But he admits that for all but the most risky devices, the expert advice they use will often be provided by a foreign regulator. It's either our medical experts, if a device comes to us for the full process, known as conformity assessment, or we're relying on a medical expert in a similar country. Uh, I've mentioned Europe in particular, but increasingly we'll also rely on medical experts in Japan, Canada and the US, for example. 
Since the Mandarin bag stunt, the European system has gone through a process of reform. It's due to take effect in 2020. Some notified bodies have been closed down and there are new requirements for expert advice to be considered before granting the coveted CE mark. But experts there have told our investigation that in reality there's no difference and that we're quote, just around the corner from the next disaster. The company that makes Pyrotitan says the device was allowed back on the market in 2014 after the regulator had overseen some corrective actions and that there are now very strict quality control measures. The latest data shows that Pyrotitan is performing well and that the company has learnt from the experience of patients like Wolfgang Nespor. The surgeon who implanted the Pyrotitan in Wolfgang's shoulder agrees and points to data that shows it's now the most implanted shoulder device with the lowest rate of corrective surgeries. While he couldn't comment on individual cases, he said he is committed to patient safety. It's small reassurance for Wolfgang. These days, he struggles to lift even small weights. Too much? Yeah, it's getting fatigued. I really think they've got a lot to answer for because it's sort of these people, like myself, it's, um, it's been like a last option and I thought I was really going to get something out of it. And um, I just wanted my shoulder to work and I didn't want any more of the pain that I was having, but it's, um, it's gotten worse. His rugby playing strongman identity is shattered. If I'm out driving, I can't keep that arm on the steering wheel too long. I've got to drop it down on my leg, but then I can't leave it on my leg too long. Well, getting dressed, I've sort of trained myself now, I just do everything with my right arm. But his shoulder can only take so many reconstructions. I either have a flaccid arm if this goes, or I have a fused shoulder. That's it, 42 years old. And then I sometimes sit there because I watch every other kid have their parents out doing these things with them, but I can't do it. And then you sit here and mull over it and you feel like less of a person because you can't get involved in your kid's life and you can't do the things that you want to do. Wolfgang Nespoir is one of about 370 people who had the Pyrotitan shoulder device implanted in Australia. And for the people whose devices cracked, malfunctioned or didn't help, the consequences have been crippling. But what if we're talking about a device that, instead of 370 people, was implanted in about 20,000 people every year? And what if your faulty device cost you more than your shoulder? When I walk into Carol Camilleri's apartment, this music is playing in the background. It's calming and puts me in a, I like to think, a nice space. I feel a bit more centred. Yeah. 
It's a small studio apartment, one room, a small kitchenette, a bed up the back, and sun is streaming through one huge window. It's a carefully curated space, and as I sit down on the couch, I can smell lavender. Carol says she feels lucky to be alive. When your mortality comes to the forefront and you're really scared for your own life, everything becomes really important and everything becomes clearer and, and more vivid and you cherish everything and everyone around you even more. Carol Camilleri is 52 years old. She got her breast implants four years ago. So I was gifted with very uneven breasts and all my life I, I never liked it but I didn't do anything about it. And then four or five years ago I decided that I really wanted to do something. I didn't like the way they looked at all. So I spoke to a plastic surgeon and, um, yeah, he kind of did a uh, reconstruction of one and made them both look really beautiful. The surgery was a success and for three years Carol's life was good and she was happy with the implants. But in late 2017, she noticed something unusual about one of her breasts. My left breast was starting to swell just slightly. It was just coming out of my bra a little bit. And I thought that, that that's not right. She went back to the plastic surgeon. At that time, he told me about ALCL. ALCL stands for anaplastic large cell lymphoma. It's a blood cancer that sometimes occurs in the fluids surrounding the implants. It's more common in implants with a textured surface than those with a smooth surface. And if caught early, the survival rate is high. They kept on saying it was so rare. This is really rare. It's so rare. And every time they said rare, I heard the word death. I just heard death, dying, dead. And I was scared. I was so scared. Doctors tested Carol and at first she was given the all clear. But four months later, the lump started hurting again. I was diagnosed with anaplastic large cell lymphoma uh, with a malignant tumour. The lump was a malignant tumour. I remember my GP gave me the results and we just hugged each other and she was just as much shock as I was. Carol still can't believe no one told her that there was a chance her implants could give her cancer. I don't understand how could they let the implants still be used in people when there's this risk, a chance, of getting cancer. How could they do that? How could they let us risk our lives? We don't even know how many implants are going into Australians right now. Some of them are going overseas, some of them are being done in back rooms. We've got no idea. Professor Anand Deva is preparing for surgery at Sydney's Macquarie Hospital. A patient lies on the operating table and to one side, Professor Deva is pulling on his rubber gloves. Seems to be working so well, the suction. Two forceps, thanks. You have to press the hole. 
Professor Davis is a plastic surgeon and a leading academic on breast implant-associated ALCL, the same cancer that Carol had. He's seen an increasing number of women with breast implants who experience problems. It's the tip of the iceberg. It's just like, this is... It's going to overwhelm... I mean, this tale of disasters is just going to overwhelm all of, all of us. Uh, I'm coming forward now to, to say, look, my perspective on this industry is very different to the... Uh, the shiny front end. This is the not-so-shiny back end where we're, we're picking up the pieces. Professor Daver is frustrated with the lack of information that some doctors give to their patients when they sign up for implants. He's also frustrated at how device manufacturers, as well as some surgeons who are focused on the cosmetic market, have, as he sees it, obscured or downplayed the risks that the implants can cause. I've seen it, right? It's a problem that you can't hide anymore. That's my concern. Should we have done something earlier? The answer is yes, we should have. You know. Why didn't we? I think that's a really good question. Hey again, Mario. Hey, Alex. So this is this recurring question that consistently comes up in this story. Why didn't we do something earlier? Why weren't we told? And in the case of breast implants, the ICIJ has found something pretty big. Yeah, so a bit of a history lesson here. Back in 1992, I didn't realise this, but breast implants in the US were banned. There were safety concerns relating to cancers, but there were also stories of ruptured and leaking implants and a lot of other problems too. Then in 2006, after this furious lobbying campaign from the manufacturers and a lot of assurances that the problems were all fixed, they were re-approved and brought back onto the market. Yeah, which brings us to today and how, for the first time, this global investigation can show that when the implants were allowed back on the market, US regulators allowed the breast implant companies to bury evidence of ruptures and other injuries by reporting them as these, like, routine events that didn't require public disclosure. So when that became public, the companies had to go back to report their statistics in a much more transparent way and when they were reporting those statistics in the proper way, it showed that all those original problems were still there. Yeah, in a really big way. So the number of suspected breast implant injuries before the change in reporting rules was around 200 per year, and they looked extremely safe. And then the next year, 2017, it jumped to 4,567. And in just the first half of this year, 2018 it's jumped to at least 8,242. I know, it's crazy and a little frightening. The experts are saying that the surge in reports doesn't mean that the breast implants have suddenly, you know, gone bad. It's just that they were never as safe as the data, as the FDA's approvals implied in the first place. And so that was in the US and in Australia in 2012. One of the leading makers of breast implants published a study. The study was commissioned by Allergan, the same company that made Carol's textured implants, and it looked at all brands of implants. Dr Davis says that grouping those with a low risk of causing cancer, like smooth implants, together with implants that came with a high risk, like the textured ones, skewed the data. And they looked at uh, broad risk, and there's lots of flaws in doing that. The paper identified the risk of ALCL in patients with breast implants as being really low, about 1 in 100,000. I think a lot of people when it first came out, as I say, thought of it as a curiosity. Oh, this is interesting, but it's not really a problem, right? If you say to me, did it slow down interest in it? Probably. For the next three years, research around the issue of ALCL caused by breast implants stagnated, and the TGA's advice about breast implants stayed the same. 
the totality of the evidence presently available showed the implants were safe and effective. But Professor Deva wasn't buying it. Women kept coming back to his suites with problems caused by their implants. It wasn't until the numbers of cases started to rise that people like me said, I think we need to look at this. Professor Deva started contacting doctors' groups around the country to manually collect more accurate data on the prevalence of ALCL in Australia, across all brands of implants. As of April this year, his research showed there were 81 cases of cancer in Australia and New Zealand, including four deaths. It shows while the company and the TGA were reassuring patients about the safety of their implants, the number of ALCL cases was actually going up. We scraped the TGA's publicly available adverse events database. Now, that's where if you're a particularly engaged citizen, you can go and check to see if there are problems with the medical device in your body. The data shows that only 29 of the 72 Australian cancer cases actually found their way into the database. This means the TGA didn't have access to an accurate picture of the risks associated with the implants when it sent out its advice. The TGA disputes this, saying as a regulator, it utilises multiple sources of information to determine the risk associated with a device. It was during this period that Carol Camilleri got her implants. In plastic surgery, data's everywhere. No one knows what's going on. It's like a black hole. Like, you know, all these implants are going in and some of them are going to Thailand and whatever. We've got no idea what's going on. The ICIJ's global investigation has aggregated that data, not just on implants and on plastic surgery, but on all faulty devices. And along with Professor Davis' work, it shows how device manufacturers have downplayed risks associated with their devices. Using a machine learning algorithm to search millions of reports, the ICIJ found 2,100 cases where people died, but their deaths were classified by manufacturers as malfunctions or injuries. The ICIJ project has also found that in the United States and Europe, manufacturers have paid at least $2.2 billion since 2008 to settle charges of corruption, fraud and other violations with regulators. In a statement, Allegan told us that patient safety is its highest priority and their welfare is supported by extensive testing, monitoring and research. The statement read, We continue to collaborate with clinicians, societies and worldwide regulatory authorities to advance research, understanding and awareness about breast implant effectiveness and safety. Back in Australia, instead of being lauded for his research, Professor Davis' results have put him in direct conflict with some of the most powerful voices in his sector. I think that when you start talking about ALCL, or in fact anything that potentially could make patients frightened, then you will get some pushback from people whose livelihood depends on selling breast implants, not just the medical community, but industry. Hi, I'm Dr Daniel Fleming. Thanks for your interest in breast implant surgery and for watching this video. Dr Daniel Fleming's the man who says he puts the most implants in Australian women. Well, without wishing to boast, I do have quite a lot of experience in breast augmentation. I've been doing it for over 20 years, more than 5,500 patients. I've taught advanced... This is just one of the 28 videos he's uploaded to his website. Then please call our office and we'll be pleased to arrange one for you. Dr Fleming's website is adorned with photos of busty, lingerie-clad women staring dreamily into the camera and information spruiking his credentials. 
There's advice about how to choose an implant size, how quickly Dr. Fleming's patients recover, and under the media tab, there's a post titled The Truth About Breast Implant Associated ALCL. Dr. Fleming has been arguing in academic circles that in most cases, breast implant associated ALCL is not actually a cancer. In June this year, he updated his website in response to media coverage of Professor Davis' research, saying that, quote, the media coverage has tended to sensationalise the issue and as a result cause anxiety for patients that is disproportionate to the real risk. Dr Fleming insists that in his clinic, patients are told about the risk of cancer and if they've got it, they must get the implants removed. Well, I think any woman who is considering having breast implants needs to be made aware that a condition called ALCL exists. It's rare. Worst case estimates are that it occurs about one in a thousand women who have breast implants. But you need to know about it. Anybody who has this diagnosis at the moment must follow the advice to have the implants and the membrane around the implants removed because we know that's 100% safe. One of the highest risk textured implants is made by a Brazilian company called Silamed. That company's implants are no longer allowed to be sold in Australia after German inspectors found contamination in the Brazilian manufacturing plant and then cancelled its European approval. The manufacturing plant burnt down soon afterwards. Silamed maintains there aren't conclusive studies that its textured type implants have a higher association with the lymphoma. In a statement, the company said, we do not consider correct the generalisation that implants of this nature are causing breast implant associated ALCL. Dr Fleming used to act as a consultant for Silamed. I have previously had acted as a consultant for one of the implant companies, but now I don't receive any benefit from any company. Dr Fleming is a fellow of the Australasian College of Cosmetic Surgery and was asked to be on an expert panel that would help the TGA to assess the risk of breast implant associated ALCL. He says he wasn't consulting for Silamed while he was on the panel. I've never sat on the committee while I've had a financial interest. Now, we're not saying Dr Fleming's relationship with Silamed ever affected the quality of care he provided to patients. But there are important questions about the independence of medical advice, the advice that doctors provide to patients, and the advice they provide to governments. If financial interests aren't disclosed, it can call into question the integrity of that advice. Even Dr Fleming says there should be more transparency over the financial relationships between doctors and device manufacturers. I'm not sure that it would make any difference, but I just think it's a good thing because it removes any doubt that anybody can conceal any kind of financial relationship. I think nearly all of the doctors who sit on that panel have had financial relationships with implant companies at one time or another, certainly the doctors who use implants do. The influence of big money flowing between doctors, pharmaceutical companies and device manufacturers is not a new story. And as patients, we place a great deal of trust in the regulator to protect us from unreliable medical advice, devices that could harm us, and doctors with competing interests. If you can't eliminate those risks, the best we can hope for is to be educated about them. You know, doctors tend to think that, oh, they're not affected. You know, you can't buy me for the price of a pizza. Barbara Minces is an expert in conflicts of interest and issues of integrity in the medical industry. Since the US introduced the Physician Payment Sunshine Act, where you can go and look up what sort of benefits your doctor is getting from their pharmaceutical drug suppliers, every free flight, conference ticket and sandwich can be searched 
and its influence examined. And there's now evidence from the U.S. Sunshine Act where you have thousands and thousands of payments in this database and thousands of doctors that even a very cheap meal, so less than $20 on average, is linked to an increase in the prescribing rate for the promoted drug. And the more of those meals that a doctor will receive, the more likely they are to prescribe that drug. Here in Australia, we've got a similar but weaker disclosures regime for drugs. And when it comes to medical devices, the best we've got is the Devices Lobby's Code of Practice, that's the MTAA, which only applies to its members and which it describes as a guide. There are financial penalties for breaches, and if companies refuse to pay, the MTAA will publish their refusal in an industry magazine. Barbara Minces says it's time transparency became an industry-wide legal obligation, not an aspiration. It's important because we know that there's an influence from those financial relationships. So making those relationships public is part of the solution. When reforms were being considered in Australia earlier this year, medical device companies were working hard behind the scenes. Political donations from the pharmaceutical health sector climbed from $1 to $1.5 million, making the industry the fourth biggest in 2016-17. The MTAA's CEO, Ian Burgess, did an interview with one of our ABC partners about this story. There's millions of devices that have assisted patients, uh, improved their lives, saved patients' lives, and that's what our industry does. We actually have a very, very good track record in terms of safety. We asked the MTAA for an interview specifically about transparency, but they told us it couldn't be done before our deadline. We asked them, how much money do you spend on lobbyists? How much money do you donate to political parties? How often do you meet with the health minister? And would you support something like the US Sunshine Act being implemented here in Australia? They provided a statement that didn't answer any of these questions directly, but did say they support a transparent medical technology industry and that they would support new legislation that would enshrine their code of practice in law, allowing them to strengthen the obligation on device companies and suppliers to report their financial ties to doctors. Background Briefing sound producer is Lila Shuna. Sound engineering by Mark Cash and Judy Rapley. Fact-checking by Anne Worthington. Additional production by David Lewis and additional reporting by the ABC's specialist reporting team, NBC, and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. Supervising producer is Ali Russell and our executive producer is Alice Brennan. I'm Alex Mann. You can subscribe to Background Briefing wherever you get your podcasts and on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening.